Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have given us your word to be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path, to teach us what we should believe in relationship to you, and to teach us how you expect us to behave in the light of those truths. Please grant now that as we consider something of your amazing grace, that you would bring this truth home to us, perhaps in a new, but certainly in a fresh and vital way, for our benefit and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were asked to suggest what aspect of God's character you would learn about from the book of the prophet Jonah, I wonder what you might answer. I'm not asking about the character of the, of the people who are mentioned in the book of the prophet Jonah. I'm not asking about Jonah himself or the sailors who had to throw him overboard or, or the Ninevites to whom he had to make the message. But I'm asking you, what aspect of God, what truth in relation to God himself do you think shines in the book of the prophet Jonah? Oh, and, and I hope we haven't mentioned Jonah at all this morning, so that's sort of come out of nowhere. But uh, I would suggest to you, as you think about it, that a strong contender for the aspect of God's character that comes from the book of Jonah is God's grace. God's grace. But that immediately raises the question, what do we mean when we talk about grace, and especially when we talk about God's grace? If you go to the concise Oxford Dictionary, it gives the word grace 14 meanings. C.S. Lewis, and I'm sure many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis, uh, um, near Christianity and, of course, the Chronicles of Narnia and so on, he believed that grace, that grace was the concept that separated Christianity from all other religions. He said this because all other religions insist that obtaining enlightenment or nirvana or paradise or, or whatever name it is given, all of those require an effort on the part of the person who wants to, to receive it. You have to do something to deserve it in all other religions. You want it, you've got to earn it. But that's not what God's grace says. The message, in fact, of Christianity stands in stark contrast to all of those others, doesn't it? Salvation, heaven, eternal life, forgiveness of sins can't be earned, isn't deserved, is not a right and can't be bought. So however the dictionaries might define it, the biblical definition, definition of grace is this, God's undeserved, unmerited, unearned favour. That's what God's grace is, his undeserved, unmerited, unearned favour. And that makes grace, God's grace, worth thinking about, doesn't it? And that's what I want us to do this morning. In fact, this is the first of, I hope, three messages to do with, with God's grace. 
And this one is entitled Amazing Grace. All right, we've got the definition of God's grace. But how do we understand grace in practical terms? Well, when you're sick enough to make an appointment to see a doctor, aren't you expecting something from him or her? Some sort of treatment, of course. Uh, Maybe some tablets. Maybe uh, an unfit-for-work certificate. Maybe uh, some exercises to do. Uh, Perhaps a prescription. But actually, you know, there's something else that needs to be done before the doctor decides on any of those things. You want the doctor to make an accurate diagnosis of what's wrong with you first, don't you? Otherwise, the tablets or the exercise or whatever the doctor prescribes may do you more harm than good. A diagnosis is necessary. And as we, when we come to God, who has been called the great physician, when we come to God, he carries out an examination and he comes and makes a diagnosis. And the news is not good. The news is not good. To paraphrase Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, I'm sorry, I have to, sorry to have to tell you this, but you're dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. And many ministers could tell you, and I'm one of them, uh, of people they have visited who were dying but refused to admit the fact that they were sick, much less that they were dying. I had a, myself, I had an aunt who was a Christian scientist. Uh, and Christian scientists say that diseases are not real uh, and uh, that they have therefore no reality. And in fact, they only have a reality if you admit to them. And my aunt had this cancerous growth on her chest, but she wouldn't admit to it, refused to admit to it. Christian science, by the way, is neither Christian nor scientific. But you see, left to our own devices and ignoring God's diagnosis, though we may be alive physically, spiritually, we are dead. And that's where God's grace comes into the picture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It's by grace you have been saved. Let me put it another way. How much can a dead body do for itself? If you're dead in your transgressions, how much can you do for yourself? And that's what makes God's grace so amazing, isn't it? Our first reading was from uh, Matthew Chapter 20, and it was the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And I wonder if you've ever thought of that as being a parable about grace, about God's grace. Now, though this parable is the beginning of a new chapter in our English Bibles, uh, there were no such chapter divisions in the original manuscripts. So it's the incident involving Jesus and the rich young ruler in the latter part of Matthew chapter 19 which actually sets the scene for the parable of the workers in the vineyard in chapter 20. 
Think about the rich young man, you know. What sort of mindset did he bring when he came to Jesus? Remember what his question was? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I earn it? How do I get it? And through his questions and his comments, Jesus indicates that although the young man has done a great deal, a great deal of good, uh, he hasn't done enough. He hasn't done enough to merit eternal life. And when he's challenged to sell everything and follow Jesus, well, that's just too much to ask. And then Jesus goes on and he indicates that this doesn't apply to just this one man. Now we read about the, the elephant. Uh, the camel, I mean, trying to go through the eye of a needle. And that's a follow-on as well, you see. Such a ha- it's impossible, in fact, for anybody, not just this rich young ruler, it's impossible for anybody to earn his way or to buy his way into eternal life, into heaven. Such a happening is only possible because of God's grace. But then, you see, that the chapter goes on. Uh, and perhaps it comes as a bit of a shock when we think about it this way. Peter, Peter of all people, reveals a mindset which is not all that much different than that of the rich young ruler. Not in regard to riches, certainly, but in regard to merit. Because what does Peter say? He says, look, we've left everything to follow you. And what's the implication of that? Well, don't we deserve eternal life? Don't we deserve heaven? Haven't we done enough to inherit the kingdom? And it's then, you see, with that setting, it's then that Jesus, after responding to Peter's question, tells the parable of the workers in the vineyard. We've already read it. Let me just quickly summarise it and its teaching. The farmer hires men at different times of the day to go and work in his vineyard. And at the end of the day, no matter how long or how short a time they've worked, they all receive the same payment. They all receive the same payment. And we're not surprised, are we, that those who've worked for the whole of the day grumble. Wouldn't that be what we did? This is not, by the way, a parable about industrial relations or how to treat your employees. It's a parable about God's grace. It's a parable about God's incredible generosity. Now, having said that, of course, the the workers, in a way, are, are right. What the boss is doing isn't fair. But grace isn't about being fair. Grace is not about giving us what we deserve. Grace is about giving us what we don't deserve. And if the boss of bosses, if I may reverently give God that title, if the boss of bosses gave us what we deserved, we'd all be in terrible trouble, wouldn't we?
Presbyterian churches uh, emphasise, or like to emphasise, the doctrines of grace. It should be known as churches that do that. I mean, if you've ever learnt the catechism or if you are familiar with it, think about what the catechism teaches. In, into what state did the fall bring mankind? Is one of the early questions. And the answer is the fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. What misery did the fall bring upon mankind? Just enlightening, enlarging on that a little bit. The fall brought upon mankind loss of communion with God and his wrath and curse so that we are justly liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself and to punishment in hell forever. That's the background. That's the background through which we should, from which we should see God's grace. Now, each time you hear the word grace in these catechism questions and answers, see if you cannot quickly, in your mind, substitute undeserved, unmerited generosity and mercy and favour. Because the catechism goes on, and of course it goes on because, just as in those hymns we've sung, uh, we don't just hear about the state in which we've fallen. The scripture makes it clear into the new state in which you can become through God's grace. So there's a question that asks, did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? Perhaps we could ask before that, uh, would have been just for God to leave all mankind? Yes, it would have been perfectly just. But did he? No. God, solely of his love and mercy, solely of his love and mercy, from all eternity elected some to everlasting life and entered into a covenant of grace, a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery and bring them into a state of salvation by a redeemer. And some following questions. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. In fact, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. And what's repentance that leads to life? Repentance leading to life is a saving grace. So what does this what do all these catechism questions and answers and the use of the word grace again and again teach us? It shows us that the Christian life from beginning to end, in fact from beginning to eternity, is the result of God's grace. It's all the result of God's grace. And you would think that, wow, since God's grace is so magnificent, uh, we would never forget it, we'd never neglect it, we'd never abuse it. Well, it is possible, sadly, for us as individuals and as congregations to lose or to negate this doctrine, this doctrine of grace. And it can be done in three ways, very simply, fallen into. First of all, there can be what is called legalism. In this case, that what I mean is that, look, look, I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. I'm at church every Sunday. I attend Bible study. I give sacrificially. 
And it's as if you've got a checklist and you tick them all off. And therefore you've earned something from God. That's legalism. Or, or there's spiritual pride. I'm a minister. I'm an elder. I'm a member of the board. I'm involved in this organisation and that organisation. And I've been doing these things for years. And again, as if you've got a tick checklist and you tick all the right boxes. And God has to. You'd Surely you deserve something from God for that. Legalism, spiritual pride, and then there's the opposite. There's ungodly freedom, ungodly freedom. Since God is so gracious, I can do whatever I like, as often as I like. And he'll keep being gracious. As long as I go to confession and receive absolution once a week, or even, of course, you can say, well, once a Christian, always a Christian, therefore, you know, I can't be lost and I, therefore I can do what I like. Let's party. So easy to fall into those traps in relation to God's grace. It would be a good idea, therefore, wouldn't it, to pray, Lord, Lord, by your grace, by your grace, keep me from these aberrations of grace. Wouldn't that be a sensible prayer to pray? We can sometimes be amazed at the salary packages that top executives and sportsmen and, and sportswomen are paid. And often wonder, they say that, that they've earned them. And you think, how could you ever earn those millions of dollars that some of those people get? They may be, may be what they're paid, but they really earn it. Let me give you one example. You probably unless you're well into basketball, and particularly American basketball, you've probably never heard of, of Danny Manning. Danny Manning is an uh, American basketballer. Danny injured his knee, as so often happens to basketballers, and there was no certainty that he would ever be well enough to play again. He was still offered, and you are sitting down, he was still offered a $40 million six-year contract. You may want to say ridiculous instead of amazing. But let me remind you of something that's definitely not ridiculous, but is even more amazing. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Not ridiculous, but amazing. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. No, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did we deserve did you deserve such consideration? Did we deserve, did you deserve such treatment? Did God owe us? Did God owe you anything? Did God do this because of some potential he saw in us, because of some pot potential he saw in you? Has God become more powerful? Or is God better off by having us or you on his side? 
Think of the hymns we've been singing. Yet Adam's children, born to pain, by self-enslaved, by sin enticed, still may, by grace, be born again, children of God, beloved in Christ. Timothy Dudley Smith uh, wrote those words, and he's right, isn't he? We're going to be singing in a moment. What shall I do, my God, to love, my loving God to praise, the length and breadth and height to prove, the depth of sovereign grace? Charles Wesley's Wesley's right, isn't he? And we've just sung, amazing grace, amazing grace. And John Newton's right, isn't he? It is amazing grace. Let me finish by asking you a question to ponder and pray over. Have you, have you received, have you experienced God's amazing grace? Have you? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, how amazing your grace is. How extraordinary that You should send your son, your only son, the Lord Jesus, King of kings and the Lord of lords into this world in such a way that uh, he could die upon the cross. Amazing grace. Amazing that you should be prepared to go to such lengths to do for us that which we could not do for ourselves. Lord, help us to be amongst those who rejoice in your amazing grace more and more. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.